You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 407 of this podcast. Today is Friday, June 10th, 2022, and that was a little cut from the beginning of a track called Follow the Wolves by a Christian metal group called Demon Hunter I used to listen to back in the day in my younger years. And there you go there. Now you know something about me that might surprise you, given the fact that I like to talk about books so much, and I typically try to be on the calmer, more even-keeled side of things. It might surprise people to know that once upon a time, I really, really enjoyed Christian rock, the heavier stuff. Uh, Demon Hunter It was probably about as heavy as I cared for. There were some others that were in that same vein that I think just musically they didn't have uh, enough of a balance. Demon Hunter at least had some balance where they would do the screaming thing, but they would also have kind of a range, I guess you could say. If it's just screaming all the time, that gets to be exhausting, quite frankly. But uh, they would scream and they would play really heavy metal Uh, But they would also have some more beautiful instrumental uh, segments as well and some softer lyrics uh, intermixed in, which I think is fun. But it's funny. I listen to every now and then, just every so often, some of that old, harder stuff that I was more fond of when I was in my teenage years, late teens, early 20s. And it always, whenever I come to Demon Hunter, It always reminds me of riding my motorcycle back and forth to work as a billing clerk at the Wilmington, Ohio headquarters for R&L Carriers. R&L Carriers is uh, a big, at least uh, national trucking company here in the U.S. I think they're up into Canada a little bit as well, but they're at least across the U.S. And their HQ is there in Wilmington, Ohio. I worked for them from 2007 to 2010. Uh, So the year after Lauren and I got married, it was really my first serious job, I would say. I was a billing clerk, though. And the funny thing about my being (laughs) in that role, for one, both my dad and my brother-in-law, Todd, were truck drivers for R&L carriers. So that was kind of funny that you know, hey, we're all working for the same company, but you guys are driving truck and I'm entering the data from your bills of lading into the computer system, into the database. Uh, also, too, I was one of only two men in the billing department that I knew of. There was just one other guy 
and he was a bit different. Uh, a huge fan of Insane Clown Posse. Look them up if you're not at all fam- if you're not at all familiar. Uh, I never had the uh, interest in listening to any of their music just because of their imagery. They have this shtick, which I think you could compare. I was describing it for one of my sons, uh, my oldest son, here recently. Uh, essentially, imagine Stephen King's It, the killer clown, but a whole rap rock group that has that kind of aesthetic as their uh, distinctive. They dress up as killer clowns and psychos and run around with sharp, pointy, blunt objects, uh, just full of menace. And he was a huge fan. The other guy in the billing department at RNL, a huge fan, always wearing uh, ICP t-shirts. And uh, so we just, we didn't, we didn't talk much. Uh, honestly, <laughs> like we engaged a little bit. He was one of the lead billers. Every now and then I would take uh, a question to him if I was scratching my head. But for the most part, like we just didn't get on. But Demon Hunter, for me, that was uh, a good pairing with riding my motorcycle back and forth between Jamestown, Ohio and Wilmington, Ohio. About a 30-minute or so ride and when the weather was nice, I really enjoyed taking the back roads if I had time uh, to get there, and then taking you know more of the main route, interstate, um, you know state route type roads to get home again in the evenings when there wasn't as much traffic. Uh, motorcycle riding and demon hunter definitely helped to offset uh, the emasculating feeling that I had working in the billing department uh, as one of only two men. Uh, But of course it wasn't, you know, there wasn't anything inherently feminine or, um, you know, unmanly about my entering data into the database. And actually uh, I would trace my affinity for audiobooks and listening to sermons and podcasts and things like that while I work back to those days. That was actually the first job I ever had where I worked from home, kind of like I do now. What I do now is a lot more technical, uh, not so much just strictly data entry as uh, working in systems and configuring and deploying and undeploying and things like that, com testing. But what I was doing back then, uh, at first it was me working at the terminal. And so I'm driving back and forth to work at the terminal making something like, I want to say it was like seven fifty uh, an hour. It was just not very much money at all. But uh, at a certain point, the original reason I had applied for the job, which was to be able to work remote from home, uh, ended up being opened up to me. And they said, you know, anybody who's interested, you can bid for working from home. And I said, oh, I, w- I would really like to. That's the whole reason I applied for this job to begin with. And they said, oh, okay, well, yeah, we'll set you up with a computer. You can take the computer home, get it connected, and you can just work from home and make phone calls if you need us, send emails if you need us, or we'll call you if we need you. But otherwise, you'll just see what it is that you need to do uh, remotely over the internet, and you'll do it. And instead of paying you per hour, we will pay you per bill. And so I went from making something like, I think it was seven fifty. Uh, an hour, or maybe it was 825. It was just not very much. Instead of making that per hour, 
it was just however many bills of lading I could enter into the system uh, per hour or per shift. You know, you know, that determined how much I got paid. And long story short, that's a story for another day. But when I was riding back and forth to work, I would listen to Demon Hunter. And it went really, really well together. Riding on at first a V-Star, Yamaha V-Star 750 uh, motorcycle. And then later I traded that bike in for a Kawasaki Ninja 250, uh, 250cc bike. And then I was riding back and forth to work on that. And both ways, you know, whether it was the cruiser or it was the sport bike, it definitely helped me to feel a little bit less uh, unmanned, a little more manly. But, you know, honestly, like I've had in my younger days an affinity for Christian rock and even heavy rock and metal. And the older I get, the less sustainable the intensity of that music feels. I think for one thing, because I'm getting older and therefore a little more tired, I'm a little less energetic. And so to some extent, the music, instead of being invigorating, is just kind of exhausting. Uh, but also too, another thing that's come with age is a greater carefulness when addressing complex high stakes situations where something more is needed than strong emotion. Yeah, you're going to have a strong emotion with this, but you have to kind of set that off to the side if you can and focus on the substance. And as I've gotten older, as I've appreciated more what the consequences can be if emotion clouds our judgment and interferes over much with our seeing things rightly, hearing things rightly, understanding things rightly, being understood ourselves well. I have tried to put highly emotional, highly sentimental content that would influence me towards just sentimentality of any kind, even anger, uh, off to the side. Try and put that off to the side so that I have an easier time staying even keeled. But still today, every now and then, I'll do what I did last night while I was working on laundry, folding laundry, and I will turn on some Christian metal as a kind of palate cleanser. That's how I use it now, actually as an offset for other content that is, uh, you know, shall we say, kind of reminding me of being a billing clerk, one of only two men in a whole billing department, uh, when otherwise, you know, I've got close family working as truck drivers, you know, that's not a great feeling. It's, uh, you know, nothing quite so awful that you have to hang your head in shame. But if you can find a way to offset, like riding a motorcycle to work, that helps. If you can listen to some uh, heavy rock, that helps. But aside from a palate cleanser, aside from that, I just, I, I, I don't think that uh, it's worth it, uh, honestly, for the most part. For the most part. I think there's exceptions. Like last night, it was all right for a little while. I listened to most of the album that uh, that track I played for you, Follow the Wolves, uh, comes from. I listened to most of that album and then turned it off because supper was ready. But I think of where James says in the New Testament, we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. James says that in the New Testament, and I think to myself, you know, if I need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, 
maybe sometimes I need to be rapid response. Maybe for the most part, I should slow things down a little bit if possible to a reasonable rate and I should answer slower and I should be really cautious about being angry or having a steady diet of angry music. I don't know that a steady diet of angry music is any more helpful than uh, a steady diet of some other type of emotional music. Do I need to be feeling that emotion all the time? Is that really helpful? Maybe not so much. A thought that occurs to me in connection to all of this is where Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, and he says that there's a time and a season for everything under heaven. Now, to my mind, that means there is a time not just for war, as Solomon writes explicitly in Ecclesiastes. That means there's also a time to get angry. There's a time to get angry. There's a time to make just war. Absolutely. If we never know how to do that, we never know when that time is because everything is always peace, peace, but there is no peace. Well, then I think we need to be cognizant of our blind spot. We really do. But what it doesn't mean is that you go to the extreme opposite end of the spectrum and you become the theological social equivalent of a Norseman berserker, unable to distinguish friend from foe, swinging wildly in every direction just because there's a war on or sometimes there's wars or somewhere, somehow in the world, uh, it is an appropriate time for fighting. No, you have to be able to determine friend from foe and determine uh, whether you're swinging in the right direction. So even there, right? Yes, there's a time for everything under heaven. There's a time and a season that includes getting angry, that includes making war, but that doesn't mean you go to the extreme. You say, oh, it's always time. It's always time. All days that end in Y are times for war and anger and whatnot. But this definitely holds true for other sentimental imbalances as well. And I think anytime we're consuming media, we're consuming content that's been created by somebody else, we should be aware of the potential that John Rubin's line from the chapter one track in his album, The Boy Versus the Cynic, would apply. And I quote, entertainers sing of extremes that don't exist for you and me. Entertainers and artists are trying to paint with these bold colors and they're trying to get our attention and they're trying to give us the feels and they do, but be careful supposing that those extremes are something to base a life off of. Just be careful about that because it might not actually follow us. Something I've learned more and more the older I've gotten. Also too, again, going back to the scriptures, James says that the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And he mentions anger specifically, but there's a lot of other feelings and emotions that have their proper place, their proper context. And yet, if you always just give in to them uncritically without thinking about it, whenever you feel them, you will get yourself into trouble. Anger, specifically, because we're talking about angry music, is one to watch out for. But I really do wonder if... Other emotional states do, right? I think we we think when he mentions anger specifically, that it's like anger especially. 
does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. But really, I mean, are there any emotional states that if we just trust ourselves to them completely will bring about the righteous life that God desires? I'm not so sure. It's an honest question. If you think that there are, by all means, let me know. But in my experience, this is what gets Pentecostals into so much trouble, is that they have the goosebumps, they have the feels, they feel close to God, especially when the music is just really hitting the spot and the rhetoric gets really grandiose. They feel close to God. And so then they're always seemingly chasing that emotional high that they associate with being close to God. And that's dangerous because what if some false spirit, what if some evil spirit can help you to feel that feeling and then you're led away to your own demise, to your own detriment, to the detriment and demise of others? You don't want that. That's why we're told in the scriptures to test the spirits to see whether they be from God. How do we test them? We test them with God's word. How is it that Jesus responds when Satan comes to him quoting scripture? Which is to say also, Satan can quote scripture too. Jesus responds by quoting scripture rightly, rightly handling the word of truth. We are told to study, to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But that is to say as well that it's possible to not do that. If it is possible for you to do it and you're told to do it, then it is also obviously implied that uh, you might not do it if you're not careful, if you don't take care. But, you know, the question of why, right? Like the question of why, even though I've distanced myself from Christian hard rock and metal as I've gotten older, you know, why do I think that I used to gravitate towards it when I was a younger man is answered by the assertion inherent to the intensity of Christian hard rock and metal that there is such a thing as a right and proper time to get angry. There just is. There is a right and proper time to get angry. Now, I say that and you're probably thinking to yourself, no, 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 no. Nope, I don't think so. And the reason for this is, at least in part, as I see it, because the more mainstream K-Love variety of Christianity is profoundly uncomfortable with there ever being a time to get angry. Now, what is the tagline for K-Love? It is positive, encouraging K-Love. So positive and encouraging is not angry. It's not intense. Positive, what they mean by that is we're going to keep it upbeat. We're going to keep it light. We're going to keep it, dare I say it sometimes, superficial. What do they mean by encouraging? Well, we're always going to be on the bright side. Always going to be optimistic. The power of positive thinking. K-love. Now, so also I think VeggieTales and other popular Christian media has, especially for kids who were raised on that, but also you got to think about who were their parents, that their parents were saying, hey, you should watch this. This is a good thing for you to watch. VeggieTales and other popular Christian media has helped to create this impression that everything in the Christian life should be mild and bright. And, you know, it's okay to be a little sad sometimes, but anger, anger has no place in the Christian life. If you're getting angry, well, that is a clear sign that you've lost sight. Now, sad, you can be a little bit sad, but even there, 
you know, you've lost sight of the goodness of God and you're not trusting him. And so we need to lecture you about the positive, encouraging stuff again. But if you're angry, especially, that is very rarely associated with anything other than sin. Very rarely. Biblically, however, if we're wanting to be Bereans about this and guard our hearts, Biblically, it's important to note that James doesn't write that we should never get angry. He says we should be slow to anger because the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Now, you might say, well, if the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires, why stop at being slow to anger? We should just go the whole way and say, I don't want to be angry at all, ever, ever, ever. It doesn't, you know, what's the point? But again, one thing at a time here. Slow to anger does not mean there is never a time for anger. What it means is that you shouldn't be short-tempered. Don't have a short fuse. I think what Paul, the apostle, writes as he defines what love is in 1 Corinthians 13 supports this. What he says is that love is not irritable. We should not read an absolute prohibition in that on ever being irritated? No, there is a time for being irritated. Like, for instance, when you encounter a pattern of rude, obnoxious, irreverent, ungodly, wicked, unjust, chronically foolish, willfully foolish behavior that corresponds to an appropriate emotional response. What is the appropriate emotional response? At a certain point, it is irritation and even anger. Now, what James says is absolutely right. It's absolutely God-breathed and profitable. We are not going to bring about the righteous life that God desires from a place of irritation and anger. But here's my question for you. If you're always trying so hard to not show or feel any irritation or anger, do you at a certain point get so wrapped up in that that it makes you unfruitful. It makes you unproductive because you're missing the point. The point is not whether or not you ever, 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 ever under any circumstances get irritated or angry. The point is, what are you doing? And are you keeping sight of what is true and what is good and what is right? If you can't, because the anger and the irritation is getting in the way, absolutely remember Ephesians 4, 26, 31, which caps off with, Put away from you all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, along with malice. Put them away from you. The first verse in that selection, by the way, is be angry. This is be angry. That's why it's really important to not just take one line or a fragment of something that's being said and just run with it and make your whole theology out of that one line. It's really, really important you read the whole counsel of God, that you study the whole of scriptures because it doesn't just say be angry. It says be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, 
by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, then to finish it off, at least for this selection, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So he says here, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, you get really upset and remember Matthew 18. Remember Matthew 5, verse 21, all the way through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, again here, it's interesting to me that it's translated as it is, whoever insults his brother. Now, some translations word this differently, right? Whoever says to his brother, Raka, which is just Greek for you fool, will be in danger of the hellfire. I've heard some people describe this as calling someone an idiot, but you're not just saying that they're an idiot if you say that they're a fool in the culture that Jesus speaking to, to call someone a fool is to say that they don't know God, not just that they are making some unwise individual choices from a practical standpoint, but from a spiritual standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, they are a fool. So we come to this question of whether it's proper to be saying these sorts of things to one another whether we're being irritable, whether it's ever appropriate for us to get angry, to be upset. And Jesus says, you should go to your brother. If you are giving your offering, if you're there, think of it in equivalent terms, you're worshiping and you remember that your brother is offended with you properly, appropriately, rightfully, go to him and make peace. Go make peace. And then we fast forward to Ephesians and again, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Also too, don't let the sun go down on someone else's anger. If you can help it, if they're all upset, why leave them in that condition? Unnecessarily, when it's in your power to restore the relationship. Paul continues, give no opportunity to the devil. I think this is of a piece with what James says. The righteous life that God desires is not produced by man's anger. So this last bit, I think is important with regards to heavy, intense, angry Christian music, even even if it doesn't have a lot of nasty lyrics, the sentiment is important. It is important. And it has caused me to distance myself from angry music as a rule, most of the time, unless it just so happens that, hey, I need a little catharsis to uh, get this out of my system. A little bit of angry music because I've thought about it. I've been slow to get angry, but now I am angry and it's appropriate for me to be angry. And uh, this hits the spot. (laughs) But then we come to this question of being more intentional 
trying to honor the good Lord, being wise, being self-controlled. And I have a few observations I want to share with you. One is that God's mercy makes no sense if we take no account of his wrath. We don't see in the biblical text God's mercy being a truer representation of who he is, a more natural representation of who he is, reflecting his true heart in a way that his wrath doesn't, or his very heart or his deepest heart in a way that is incongruous. We don't we don't see that. That's just not what it is. And actually, in fact, I think God's mercy makes no sense apart from his wrath. Both are equally valid and equally true characteristics and attributes. They don't just appear to be what they're described as. They are. He is wrathful. When he pours out his wrath, it is very wrathful. When he extends mercy, it is very merciful because God is very God. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't regret it, not in the way that we regret it, but that language is sometimes used in the biblical text so that we can have some hope, some hope of comprehending the one who is incomprehensible because he's dealing with people who are finite and he's infinite. But it seems to me, like here's an observation for you, seems to me as though every time we see God's wrath being referenced, it is in relation to the wickedness of men. It is concurrent with God's judgment being declared and carried out or at least promised. God has wrath and that wrath is in proportion to the wickedness of man who was made in God's image and yet is rebelling against him, sinning against him, breaking what God has made or trying to, trying to assert some kind of a foolish dominance over what it is that God has instituted and who God is. And so I think from that, imperfectly, and yet nevertheless, when we are right to get angry, it is because there is something wrong that is happening. And even when we're wrong, even when we're wrong about getting angry, we are angry because something wrong is being done. Some injustice, some evil is being done or has been done or is about to be done. That's what anger is about when it comes to mankind. Now, of course, if you're savvy, you'll say, aha, but our perception is not always reality. Sales and marketing people can be guaranteed to tell you that perception is reality. When it comes to PR, public relations, politics, relationships with customers, if you're a vendor, perception is reality. No, perception is not reality. If perception were reality, then we would never need to double check our math, would we? But the perception piece here is really, really important because God is slow to anger, not because he's trying to double check his math, not because he's just like, oh, well, I don't know, let me, you know, let me just see, you know, I'm not sure. Like, no, he knows what's up. He knows what's up every step of the way. He is not slow, but he is merciful. He's trying to give us an opportunity. He's succeeding, actually. He's not trying. He succeeds, giving us an opportunity to repent. 
because he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So God is slow to anger, and yet when it comes to us, we should be slow to anger because we could be wrong. We could think that we are being wronged or that someone else is doing wrong or doing a wicked thing, an evil thing, what have you, and we could be wrong about that. That's a really, really important thing to consider about the difference between us and God. You know, when God says that something is so, when God says that something is so, it is so. That is what it is. He knows. and There's no fooling him. All of creation is naked before him. He knows the number of the hairs on our heads. He sees to the innermost thoughts and feelings of our hearts and minds. He knows every step of the way. We don't. We don't always. Sometimes we get angry because we misunderstand. We are lacking some of the important information that we need. This is also why mob justice is so dangerous. This is also, by the way, why due process is so important. Because not only do sometimes people unintentionally get the wrong idea, sometimes bad, evil, wicked men will accuse others of evil to create a pretext for depriving them of their lives and their property and their freedom for selfish gain or because they're just malicious, they're just sadistic, they're bitter, what have you. So yes, right? Like, yes, there's a time for us to get angry. There's a time for us to be irritated when all options have been exhausted. And yet our perception is not fully reliable. It's just not. And yet when we have double-checked, because we can't just <clears throat> we can't feign ignorance in the absence of perfect knowledge, right? That's not reasonable. There is a difference between needing to wait for all the facts to come in and intentionally ignoring the facts that have come in because we don't want to act. So you don't confuse the two, right? Failing to do the good that we ought to do is every bit as much sin as actively doing evil that we know we ought not to do. Sins of omission and sins of commission. Both God can and does forgive, but should we sin that grace might abound all the more? God forbid. God forbid. It's fair for us to ask, and I think actually it's needful. Here's my bottom line, and then we'll switch over, and we'll talk about Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ. I promise. But it's appropriate when we are angry as part of our putting away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, for us to consider what's driving that. Why do I feel the way that I feel? Should I feel the way that I feel is closely connected to why do I feel the way that I do? Is it appropriate for me to feel the way that I do? If it is appropriate, you can still put away that anger and then act. And you don't have to perfectly put away all of the anger in order to act appropriately. That's why it says, be angry and do not sin. Ephesians 4, 26. The goal of putting away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice is not going to be perfectly met, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, brothers and sisters, dear friends, Romans, countrymen, you will not perfectly accomplish that. You should try. You should try to get perfect, as close to perfect as possible, but in the absence of perfect execution, you still will have to 
contend with. The real wrong that has been done, is being done, will be done if there's anything for you to do about it. Now, some people, they get really depressed. And I think that the difference between despair on the one hand and wrath on the other is whether you are in a position to do something about it or whether anything is being done by those who are. And an important thing here is to realize that, yes, God is always acting, but also we are not told in the scriptures that only God is ever to act because God is God and we're not God. No, God gave us ability. He gave us mental ability, physical ability, emotional ability, yes, spiritual ability. And he calls us to invest our talents, not bury them in a field. So we don't just bury them in a field because we know our master's a hard man and he comes back. Oh, he'll be fine. He's got enough. No, he gave you that to invest You've dishonored him if you don't. So do. So what are you supposed to do? When there is an injustice, there's a wrong, there's an evil, put your anger, put your wrath away. Figure out what is true according to God's word, first and foremost. Test the spirits, first and foremost. And act as you ought to act. Engage as you are supposed to engage. And if you're not supposed to engage, trust the good Lord or appeal to somebody who is in a position to do something about it. If they don't, that's between them and God. You did your part to make them aware of the situation. That's all you can do sometimes. That's all you can do sometimes. Moving on, though. Here we are so far into this episode, but all of that I feel strongly needed to be said. And it is relevant. Last but not least, I want to talk with you about The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair B. Ferguson, Scotsman, theologian, preacher, pastor. I'm not super familiar, but I do like his accent. I do like the fact that he's a Scot and I liked his book. I think it was a good book. Uh, The summary, first and foremost, from Goodreads for the book, The Whole Christ, Legalism, Antinomianism, and Gospel Assurance, Why the Marrow Controversy Still Matters, reads as follows. Since the days of the early church, Christians have wrestled with the relationship between the law and gospel. If, as the Apostle Paul says, salvation is by grace and the law cannot save, what relevance does the law have for Christians today? By revisiting the Marrow Controversy, a famous but largely forgotten 18th century debate related to the proper relationship between God's grace and our works, Sinclair B. Ferguson sheds light on this central issue and why it still matters today. In doing so, he explains how our understanding of the relationship between law and gospel determines our approach to evangelism, our pursuit of sanctification, and even our understanding of God himself. Ferguson shows us that the antidote to the poison of legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other is one and the same, the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ in whom we are simultaneously justified by faith, freed for good works, and assured of salvation. For those unfamiliar, the Goodreads.com author's summary for Sinclair B. Ferguson reads that he is, and I quote, associate preacher at St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, 
and also Distinguished Visiting Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was Senior Minister of First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina, and prior to that, he was Minister of St. George's Tron Church in Glasgow, which, by the way, if I may, if I may comment on this just briefly, St. George's Tron Church in Glasgow, is this some kind of a futurist church in Glasgow? A Tron church? What is a Tron church? I want to go to a Tron church. Makes me want to play some Daft Punk, which is also some great music, to ride a sport bike back and forth to work on, by the way, just for the record. In fact, why don't we play just a little clip, just just, just a tiny, just a tiny bit, and then we'll get back to the marrow controversy. Just a little bit of Tron soundtrack. Here you go from Daft Punk. Or maybe not, or maybe maybe not. Maybe that's not what. Maybe that's not what it means. Uh, it would be cooler if it did mean that. Maybe, possibly. I don't know. Um, I'm speaking from ignorance here. I. <laughs> uh, I. I should look it up. I will look it up. I will have an answer for you. Saint George's Tron Church in Glasgow. Uh, unless you happen to know, and you reach out to me first. Tell me what is. St. George's Tron Church in Glasgow. Uh, that is where he was minister, which is kind of awesome. Uh, so what is the marrow controversy, right? That, that's the full title for this book, The Whole Christ, Legalism, Antinomianism, and Gospel Assurance, Why the Marrow Controversy Still Matters. What is the marrow controversy? Now, according to Wikipedia, the marrow controversy was a Scottish ecclesiastical dispute occasioned by the republication in 1718 of the marrow of modern divinity originally published in two parts in london in 1645 and 1649 by e f which is funny kind of because he didn't use his full name he's a light person they believe if it is in fact edward fisher he was a lay theologian of the 17th century didn't use his full name. He just used his initials, which I, knowing nothing else about him, I can definitely imagine reasons for. I can imagine reasons why a lay theologian would just use a pseudonym, would just use his initials, take this work on its merits. Ironically enough, we're talking about grace. Now it says here, the work consists of religious dialogues, which discuss the doctrine of the atonement, and aim to guide the reader safely between antinomianism on the one hand, which is just no law, against law, and neo-nomianism, which would mean new law. Uh, 
1700 while making a pastoral visit in the small country parish of Simprin. In the course of his work as a Church of Scotland minister, Thomas Boston saw and borrowed a copy of The Marrow of Modern Divinity. He greatly appreciated the book and, while a member of the 1717 General Assembly commended it to a fellow minister. As a consequence of this conversation, in 1718, arrangements were made to have the marrow reprinted with a preface by James Hogg of Carnock. The book displeased those who comprised the majority of the Church of Scotland. James Haddow, professor of divinity and principal of St. Mary's College in the University of St. Andrews, took the lead in opposing the marrow, assailing it in his opening sermon at the Synod of Fife in April 1719. This was published shortly thereafter as the record of God and duty of faith therein required. An interchange of pamphlets with Hogg ensued, with Haddow accusing the Marrow of the antinomian heresy, and Hogg asserting that Haddow was misrepresenting the Marrow. At the May 1719 General Assembly, an existing Committee for Purity of Doctrine was instructed to inquire, and I quote, into the publishing and spreading of books and pamphlets, end quote, tending to the spread of doctrines, quote, inconsistent with our confession of faith, end quote, and to call such authors to account. The committee's report submitted in May 1720 strongly condemned the book as antinomian. The assembly overwhelmingly approved this report, prohibited all ministers of the Church of Scotland from recommending the marrow in any way, and instructed them to warn their people against reading it. This had the effect of advertising a previously obscure book to people throughout Scotland, and many proceeded to buy a copy and to read it carefully, which is <laughs> which is funny. It's like you you almost couldn't come up with a better way of getting people to read it than trying to tell people don't read it. Uh, it's reverse psychology, classic, classic reverse psychology. Continuing on, at the assembly in 1721, 12 men, including Boston, Hogg, and both Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine, which I talked about both of those men, by the way, in our last episode. Go back and check that one out if you would like to hear more. Submitted a, quote, representation and petition, end quote, arguing that in condemning the marrow, the assembly had condemned propositions which were scriptural and other expressions which were plainly taught both by many Orthodox divines and in the doctrinal standards of the Church of Scotland. They also argued that the report had misrepresented the book's teaching, taking various expressions out of context. Their petition was rejected. In the assembly of 1722, the marrow's condemnation was reaffirmed, and the twelve representatives were rebuked. Subsequently, every effort was made by the men who had opposed the marrow to prevent ministers holding marrow doctrines from obtaining more influential pastoral charges, but no effective disciplinary action was taken against them. The ecclesiastical controversy thus gradually drew to an end, but theological disagreement continued. In the 1730s, though over a different issue, that of patronage, some of the proponents of marrow theology left the Church of Scotland to form the associate presbytery with the distinctive doctrines of the marrow, forming the theological basis for the new church. In 1726, a new edition of the marrow was published with a preface and extensive annotations by Thomas Boston, defending and expounding the marrow's teaching as scriptural. In this form, the marrow has been frequently reprinted over the last nearly 300 years and has been widely influential. That is an interesting story. That is a very interesting story. Most of that from the Wikipedia article for the marrow controversy, by the way. So, in a nutshell, that is what 
The Whole Christ by Sinclair B. Ferguson is about this debate in Scotland in particular over legalism, antinomianism, and gospel assurance. And if you just put the whole business that you're unfamiliar with off to the side, the marrow controversy off to the side, Scottish Presbyterians, Scots of any kind arguing about anything is always going to be an interesting story. (laughs) I don't care who you are. But put all the unfamiliar bits aside. Legalism, antinomianism, and gospel assurance are entirely relevant matters for us to attend to as Christians in any place, in any time. And so this is a very interesting book. It's an interesting book, whatever conclusions you come to. Because, for instance, let's suppose you say, ah, no, 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 it's grace, grace, grace. But the grace is conditional on repentance. So if you don't repent, you get no grace. No grace for you. If you don't repent, you have to repent first. And this became a big sticking point because the question was, which is the cart and which is the horse? And this is an important question when we hold to the Reformed doctrine, the doctrine which was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, that we are not saved by works. You are not saved by works, lest any man should boast. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, Paul writes. So we come to it, and then someone says, "Wow, well, yes, but you have to repent first. You have to repent first. If you don't repent, then you have not actually received grace. Ah, but wait, it's important how you put that order of operations. Did you, did you get grace first? Was grace extended to you first? Then you repented as a indication that you have received this grace, or did you repent first, and then subsequently you get the grace? If you repent first, and your grace reception is conditional on your having repented, instead of your repentance being a evidence of your having received grace, that is a great, great difference. It might seem like a very petty distinction, but it's a great big difference. And also for that matter, what do we do with law if we're going to say, well, it's not of works, but we go so far as to become lawless? How do we avoid being lawless? What do we do with the law? If we're not going to be legalistic, we don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to go around supposing that we are saved by our own works, our own ability to keep the law. The New Testament is absolutely abundantly clear and predicated on our inability to keep the law. So then what is the purpose of the law? The antinomians lose sight of the purpose of the law, which is to convict us of sin and to indicate our need for a savior, but also too, also too, God has prepared good works for us to walk in. If we are his people, he prepared good works for us to walk in. So then the antinomian, by rejecting any standard of good behavior, which would be applicable, any means by which we would judge a good tree by the good fruit that it produces or a bad tree by the bad fruit that it produces, the antinomian throws out a lot of scripture in the process to cling to a disproportionate emphasis on not by works. So we don't want to be legalistic and suppose that we save ourselves. We also don't want to be antinomian, lawless, and suppose that the law is of no account whatsoever. No, 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 no. 
Actually, as Sinclair Ferguson points out, both legalism and antinomianism are two sides of the same coin. The trouble with both is that we misapprehend God's grace. We misapprehend the gospel. And so the key issue there is, do we actually know what the gospel is, much less to believe in it, much less to be saved by the good news? For God's grace has been extended to us, and by faith we take hold of the promise and enjoy its benefits. It's a very important issue. It's a very, very critical central issue when it comes to how we're going to conduct the business of the church. So in short, in short, I would recommend The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. I think it was well-written. I think it was interesting. I think it really highlights the importance that we not take certain ideas and then emphasize them to the exclusion of other ideas because we're more comfortable with the law. We feel pretty good about ourselves. We feel like, hey, you know what? I think I can keep the law better than anybody I know. Therefore, I gain advantage socially thereby. No. Also, if you're lawless and you say, ah, well, you know what? I'm not very good at keeping the law. Actually, there's a great deal that I'd like to do and enjoy. And I have to ignore what God has said in order to enjoy it. No, not so fast. You can't be lawless and then thereby find yourself at odds with God and then still expect he's going to rubber stamp your entry into heaven, into eternal life. It does not work that way either. He will not be mocked, we read. A man reaps what he sows. So it's very, very important that we understand the relationship of God's law as a teacher and also God's grace to redeem us, to save us. Also, too, another interesting thing, it it really is, and not that he spends a great deal of time on this, but it is really interesting to me that this EF who published The Marrow of Modern Divinity, who everyone suspects or generally everyone suspects was the author of The Marrow of Modern Divinity, might be Edward Fisher, a lay theologian. Isn't that something? He's a layman. He's a layman. He's a layman who may have contributed to a major separation in the Church of Scotland with a good contingent of Presbyterians saying, no, we want to go over here, and a good contingent of Presbyterians saying, absolutely not. We think this is quite correct, and you actually have invalidated yourselves by disagreeing with it. And we can find that still to our day, and I think it's instructive for a number of reasons, not just to do with lawlessness and legalism and grace, but also to do with how do you deal with a book that you disagree profoundly with? Or how do you deal with a disagreement over a book about which there's a great deal of disagreement, important disagreement? Do you say, no one should read this book? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think actually what should be is we are Bereans about books, especially books that we disagree with. Now, there's a fair question that could be introduced where you say, okay, well, either A, we could exercise discernment by reading books that we are going to have to profoundly disagree with and exercise discernment that way. Or we could recommend books and read books we're going to very much agree with and ought to and exercise discernment that way. You know, and there's definitely room for discussion on that point. But it is funny to me, having studied 
the Scots, having hailed from Scots on my mother's mother's side and my wife's father's side being Scottish, I have some familiarity and I am amused. I am amused by the very fact that these Scots were told not to read this book suddenly drew everyone's attention to the book. And they say, oh, really? Oh, yeah, we should absolutely read that. You know, it's almost as if, in hindsight, you could tell the Church of Scotland, <laughs> those who were against the Marrow of Modern Divinity, if they wanted to get people to not read it, they should have made it required reading. That's I, That was all, like, that would have been <laughs> a more successful plan to get people to not read it. Because Scots are something of a, a stubborn people, but in any event, alas, I digress. It's an interesting read. It's a well-written read. Uh, it's definitely a lot of food for thought, and uh, I think instructive of how important these kinds of things can be. We don't want a half Christ. I mean, that's the whole idea behind the title. You want the whole Christ, the whole Christ, not a lopsided view of Christ in which we emphasize certain things that he says to the exclusion of other things that he says, or certain things that Jesus is to the exclusion of other things that Jesus is. If we do that, we may just find that we are in bad company with a great many of the heretics throughout history. We don't want to be in their company. We just we just flat don't. Not for our own sake, not for the sake of those who entrust themselves to us. We don't want that. So I think, it, I think we do well to study portions of church history like the whole Christ, like this marrow controversy, I think we'd do well. Now, interestingly enough, there's a, a whole other dimension of complexity to <laughs> this book in particular because Ferguson himself asks Tim Keller to write the foreword. And as I said in our last episode, I have the strongest possible disagreement with Tim Keller and his position on social justice critical race theory. I think he's not just mistaken. I think he is dangerously wrong with how influential he is. This is one of the big reasons why I am consistently opposed to cults of personality being built up around even people that I like, because I think it's dangerous for them. It's dangerous for us as well. You want to build up a cult of personality around somebody, build up a cult of person build, build up a cult of personality around God. How about that? Right? Like let's, let's do that. Uh, because otherwise when they're wrong, we just follow them uncritically because they're right on so many other things. We follow them uncritically. We should not follow them when they're mistaken. We should follow and stay true to God and what God's word says. We should definitely be Bereans. Bereans are praised for searching the scriptures daily to see whether the things that Paul and Barnabas were saying to them about the Messiah were true. The Jews in Berea are commended. They are not condemned. They are commended as of a more noble sort because they search the scriptures daily May we be that way as well, searching the scriptures, being familiar with God's word, studying it diligently, being very, very careful with our doctrine and practice. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, very, very important. Not that we won't sometimes disagree. We absolutely will. And even in disagreeing, we should keep a close watch over our doctrine and practice with regards to how we handle the disagreement and what that says about what we believe about God and ourselves what we know from his word, but he gives more grace. So I'm going to leave it there. That's all the time I've got for this episode. Go check out the whole Christ as always. Thank you for listening until next time. God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.